Our passage is Hebrews 10. It's verses 1 to 4. 10, 1 to 4. However, we will read verses 1 to 18. We'll read verses 1 to 18 to understand the train of thought and focus on the first four verses. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Word of God. This Word of God that is true, it's living, it's abiding, it gives us life. It is the Word of life. We pray, Father, that this Word will become clear to us, will comprehend exactly, more precisely also, what you have intended by the sacrifices that are herein. We pray especially that we might compare them and cling to the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our forgiveness. Teach us how important that is and teach us to hold on to it, to hold on to it tenaciously, never let go, and to never walk away from what Christ has done for us. We ask in his name. Amen. As we know, our, our author here, he has been, for a few chapters, emphasizing the point of comparing the Old Testament or the Old Covenant under Moses with the New Covenant and the New Testament. He compares and he contrasts the two. He does so because 
people, generally speaking, whether Jews or Gentiles, whoever it is that comes across the Bible, there is this propensity, there is this inclination that people have to misunderstand the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament all about? What is the purpose of the Old Testament? Why is it there? Why is so much of it there? Why is the Bible 75% or three-fourths of the Bible? Why is it the Old Testament? And why is it that Jesus and the apostles constantly quote it and keep saying, it is written, the scripture says, Isaiah said. Why do they constantly do that? What is the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament? He's been making the point for a few chapters now about the ritual law. He's been saying that the ritual law, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament had a specific purpose. Its purpose was to point the way to Jesus Christ. The sacrifices of animals, the grain offerings of the Old Testament, and the sacrifices of the animals, the building of the tabernacle that Moses built, the building of the temple that Solomon built, the, the temple and the tabernacles, they have as their purpose to show us what Jesus would do eventually when he came into the world. That's the reason for it. That's the reason for the ritual laws of the Old Testament. He's been making this point again and again. He does it again here. And he uses strong words. He uses strong words such as never and impossible throughout this passage. Never and impossible to say that the sacrifices of the animals do not pay for your sins. Let's see more in depth what he means. He says in verse 1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. In the scriptures, when it says the law, like in this passage, often when it says the law, such as our passage, in this context, he does not mean every single thing written in the Old Testament. He does not mean every single thing written by Moses in the law of Moses. He doesn't mean it that way. When he says the law in this context, he means the ritual law, the sacrificial law. We know he's talking about sacrifices because it's right there in verse 1. He says the same sacrifices year by year. He's talking about the sacrificial law. The ritual law, the ceremonies of the law. That's what he means in our context. This is important because his point is to compare and contrast the animal sacrifices of the law of the Old Testament to Christ. Because he's saying that they are shadows. That it was a shadow of the good things to come. He's saying that the Old Testament animal sacrifices, the rituals, are shadows of the very form of things. Shadows of the very form of things. When he says shadow and form, he means shadow and substance. When we see a shadow of something or someone approaching, when we see a shadow of a person approaching, we are not so focused on the shadow as anticipating the person who will appear around the corner because we see his shadow. Correct? We're not so focused on the shadow itself, but on the person who is about to come around the corner 
and reveal his actual person, his substance, his actual form, the reality. Our hope is not in the shadow. The shadow helps us to anticipate, but it anticipates the actual person we put our hope in. We put our expectation in. We anticipate the actual person. That's what he's saying right here. He calls all of these rituals and sacrifices of the Old Testament, he calls them shadows because we should look for the substance, look for the person. So when the animals were offered at the feast of the Passover, when the sacrificial lamb, such as we read in Matthew 26, when that sacrificial lamb of the Passover was offered, they were not putting their hope in a dead animal, a dead sheep that they put to death and then ate together as a family. They weren't putting their hope in that. They were supposed to use that as a symbol and a shadow of the fact that Jesus would come one day and take away their sins. That's why John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. He looked at Jesus approaching and he called Jesus the Lamb of God. Just like the Passover Lamb. The Passover Lamb would not save the people from their sins, would not give them salvation. This Passover lamb would not do that. The Passover lamb was only a shadow, an illustration of the fact that Jesus would come into the world to take away their sins. Therefore, when we read of any shadows, when we read of any types of illustrations, any examples in the Old Testament like this, we should be asking the question, what does this have to do with Christ? How is this connecting it to Christ? Then it will benefit us. Then we will put our hope in it. Why does he have to say this? He has to say this, and he has to also say that they never, year by year, these same sacrifices never make us perfect. And he also says in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He says that, this is never an impossible. Why? Now that is an amazing statement for one. Why is it never an impossible? It's never an impossible, even though we are dealing with a God uh, or a commandment that God commanded them. This is a commandment of God. God is the one who told them, offer these animals as sacrifice. God is the one who insisted that they offer these sacrifices year by year. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. God commanded them to do it. So if God commanded them to do it, and they're supposed to do it, then to the extent that they obey, then that's fine and good. Correct? It would be a good work. It's something God told them to do. But what is he doing with this? When he says, even though God commanded it to be done, but you should not put your hope in it, what's he teaching them? We are not saved by good works. He's saying he's, that God is teaching us by this one way. There are many ways God shows us this, but he's teaching us we're not saved by good works of the law. The law, whatever it teaches, the good things it teaches, it's not teaching us to do those good things so that we can be saved by doing those good things. We are not saved by good deeds. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved that way. Because there is nothing we could do that is good that would be acceptable to God. 
Nothing, absolutely nothing. We are not good people when we are born into the world. We're not good people in comparison to God. We're not good people, good enough people, to be able to present anything good that we have to God, even when we are obeying God, as though God says, okay, I see what good things you've done, therefore you deserve to come to heaven. I see what you've done, therefore my, my salary to you, or my wage to you, because of all that you've done, is this eternal life. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. There is nothing we can do. And the animals, and the sacrificial death of these animals, was intended to illustrate that fact. It was intended to illustrate that fact because it says they offer them year by year. They offer them continually. Continually, year by year. The Passover sacrifice was every year in the springtime. And the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement was every year in the fall. Every year. The Day of Atonement sacrifices. These were annual sacrifices. They were offered every year. Now, if the animals themselves, or our obedience to putting them to death themselves, if that itself forgave us of our sins, a good deed, then why do we have to do it every year? Why do we have to do it all the time? Why do we have to do it regularly, constantly, continually, year after year after year? This is what the Jews had to do. They had to do it all the time. Why do they have to do it all the time if they were forgiven by doing it the first time? That's the problem. They weren't forgiven by doing it the first time. They were not saved from their sins by offering those animals the first time. They were only saved if they understood why they were offering those animals. If they believed in Jesus dying for their sins, coming to die for their sins, then they would have been saved. He says here, that they can never make perfect those who draw near. How are we going to be made perfect? We who have sinful thoughts, we who have a corrupt heart, we who say words and we commit deeds that are contrary to the will of God, how can we be made perfect? How can we be made perfect? Is it by doing just one good deed? Or is it by regular good deeds of these animal sacrifices? How can we imagine that? How can we be made perfect by doing that? We know that that's not the case. Do we not know? If we just read the prophets, if we were to read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel or any of the prophets like that, if you read them, it doesn't take long to figure out that the people, the common people, would often think, well, as long as I did the sacrifices, and everything else is fine. And they would reiterate, they would say again and again and again, the prophets would preach against it and say, what are you doing? You can't just offer these animals and think that your life is fine and that you're perfect and that there's no need for forgiveness and that you're prepared to meet God on the day of judgment. The prophets would constantly tell the people, no, don't do that, don't think that way. Those sacrifices will not work. Those sacrifices do not suffice. You, have, you cannot be made perfect that way. Your conscience cannot be freed from its guilt. You have to be forgiven by the ultimate and only way of forgiveness, the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ for forgiveness of sins. 
He says in verse 2, If it were true, if it were true that the animals sufficed, he says in verse 2, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, those who presented the animals to the priest to slave the and or to put the, their blood on the altar, would not the worshipers, after they offer, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? When he says consciousness of sins, what he means is a guilty consciousness of sins. If we were to do a vain ritual, such as even what God commanded, the animal sacrifices, if we were to do it again and again, he's saying to them, don't you people realize, don't you realize, I've been telling you this, I want you to understand, I want you to be saved from your sins, but when you kept on offering those animals for sacrifice, did you not constantly still feel guilty? Didn't you re realize that you had the burden of your sins on you and there was no release? God did not relieve that burden of your sins from your shoulders. You were still heavy-hearted. You, your conscience was still pricked. Don't you realize that? You would still have that guilty consciousness of sins because of the animals, but not because of Christ. Correct? We all are born with a conscience. Some of us have a more sensitive conscience than others. The more we work against that conscience to tell us the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, the worse it is for us. But when we have that consciousness of sins, we know we are guilty. We are guilty of evil thoughts, evil words, evil deeds. We know we have that. Who is going to remove that guilt we feel inside? Who is going to remove that guilty conscience? How will that happen? Does it not happen only in Christ? Does it not only happen in Christ? We hear that we are sinners, but we also hear that Christ came into the world to save sinners, that he died on the cross for our sins, that his death will apply, his righteousness and his goodness, his perfection will apply to us so that we'll be reckoned righteous in the sight of God. What Jesus did will be placed into our account so our account is full, not empty, and we're not in debt anymore. We're not indebted to God anymore because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe in that, and now we don't have a guilty conscience. Now we feel free. Now that guilt is removed, we feel cleansed. We know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have this assurance that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We have a new heart. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We believe this. There is a transformation. We're not the same person we used to be. We are not thinking the way we used to think. This kind of transformation, this kind of difference, this kind of change of heart, that is, we used to have a guilty heart, and now we have a forgiven heart. We used to have terror and fright and fear, about the day of judgment, and now we don't have that because the love of God has been poured in our hearts. We know we belong to Him. We, we know that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. 
That difference, that change, this is what he means right here. He says, if the animals were able to do it, why do you still feel guilty? Why do you still not know if you're going to heaven, if the animals were able to do it? The animals are not able to do it. They're just animals. They can only be used as an illustration, as a shadow. They cannot be used to save you from your sins and to get rid of that internal, spiritual guilt that we have. Only the blood of Christ, the Son of God, who became Son of Man, who died on the cross for our sins. Only if we believe in Him can we have this removal of guilt or consciousness of sins. And then finally he says in verse 4, For, or because, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. We think it is possible. We like to think that doing some good deed like this, or some other good deed that God has commanded, is, makes it possible for us to enter into heaven. Yet he says the very opposite. He says, it is impossible. Don't ever put your hope and trust in any animal, in anyone, in anything, except Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ can save us from sins. The blood of bulls and goats and sheep and birds, whatever else he might have listed here, could have listed, will never take away our sins. He mentions bulls and goats. Those were two of the animals used on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. He mentions them. They are used there in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement in the annual sacrifice. But he means, just by using those two as illustrations, that none of these animals will ever do it. Can never take away sins. You see, also, remember, in the Day of Atonement ritual, one of the goats was known as the scapegoat. One of the goats was known as the scapegoat. There was supposed to be, at the proper time on that day, a man ready to take that goat and then to lead it into the wilderness for it to be taken away to a solitary place, for it to go away, to roam away, to be taken away. A man had to be ready to go do that for one of the goats. Why? Was it because literally the people of Israel, their sins were literally on that one goat? Well, what about the other goat? And what about the other, what, the other animals, the bulls? Was it on that goat taken away or was it on the other animals? The answer is neither. But figuratively speaking, in terms of a shadow, in terms of an illustration, that goat, when the man took it away, it was illustrating the fact that Jesus would take away our sins. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away. In the same way here, he says, These bulls and goats could not take away sins. But the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, He can take away sins. It's impossible for them to do it, but Jesus does. He actually does take away sins our sins. That's what he'll emphasize in the subsequent verses, from verses 5 and following, that it is Jesus who does it. These animals won't do it. These animals portray Jesus. These animals prefigure Jesus. These animals illustrate what Jesus will do. So put your hope in Jesus, not the animals. 
and not any other good deed that we might perform. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you that he has come into the world as the perfect man. He lived and died just as we do, but yet perfectly. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And he was also Son of God. Lord, our hope is only in him. Do not let us put our confidence in ourselves, our own goodness, our own mind, our own wisdom. Don't let us put confidence in other people. May we not trust in any other man. May we not trust in any religion, any other religion, any philosophy, any books, nothing. May we not trust in anything that is out there in the world, but only trust your Holy Word, your Holy Son, your Holy Spirit, the only way of salvation for our souls. We pray that we all will indeed examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, that we'll turn away from our sins, and that we'll put our full and only confidence in Christ. We pray that for ourselves. We ask that you renew us and enable us to teach the same truth to our family and friends. Be with us, Lord, and give us a greater appreciation for the uniqueness, the, the exclusiveness, the superiority of the death of Christ for our sins. We ask in his name. Amen.